If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1 through chapter 59, verse 13. Isaiah 58, 1 through 59, 13. Nobody likes a hypocrite. You might like a hypocrite, but nobody respects, appreciates, admires a hypocrite. But you know what's interesting? Hypocrisy generally makes us kind of bitter, puts a sour taste in our mouth when we see it in others. But none of us consider ourselves to be hypocrites. Everyone else, well, maybe not everyone else, but other people outside of us are hypocrites, but not us. No, no, no. We are prosecutors when it comes to recognizing the hypocrisy of those around us. But we have the best defense attorneys we can buy when it comes to our own hypocrisy when it is on trial. When last were you called a hypocrite? When last was that kind of charge made against you? Well, today in Isaiah 58 through chapter 59, verse 13, we see God address hypocrisy amongst his people. This is a hypocrisy that's grounded in the people of Israel, the people of Judah, who knew these great promises of God that they held to and were anticipating the coming reign of Christ in his creation. Their hypocrisy was born of not living in that day in a manner that was in accord with the reign of God that they anticipated. Nobody likes a hypocrite. What I want to argue for our text, from our text today, is that we cannot fool God with hypocritic, empty religiosity that ignores our lack of care for others. He knows our hearts towards others and invites us to come to Him for mercy. Let me say that again. We cannot fool God with hypocritic, empty religiosity that ignores our lack of care for others. Because God knows our hearts towards others and invites us to come to Him for mercy. So we're going to see how our empty religiosity in chapter 58 can only be responded to by full repentance in chapter 59. Empty religiosity, God is not amused by lip service. He is not amused by mouths that praise Him and pronounce trust in Him on Sunday morning that is divorced from lives that are in sync with His mercy that we profess the rest of the week. God sees through our hypocrisy. First, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 58, look at the depths that we will go in hypocrisy. God tells Isaiah in verse 1 to issue a warning to his people Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. And now in verses 2 and 3, he begins to state his charges against the house of Jacob or the people of Israel. He says in verse 2, Yet they seek me daily. 
They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Do you see how big that as if is in verse 2? The first part of verse 2 is off to a good start. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. But then it kind of veers off to the side. Screeching tires, a sharp turn at 70 miles an hour. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. I think it is a good rule of thumb for all of us who are followers of Christ to not want God to put an as if over us. This brother, this sister prays. This brother or this sister is faithful in their worship attendance. This brother or this sister has X amount of verses or even books of the Bible memorized. As if they did righteousness. As if they cared for the needs of others. The people of Judah's lives are out of step with their prayers, with their fasting. They're knocking at the door but God is not answering. And as verse 3 shows us, they are starting to feel dry and empty. They say to God, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Pause right here. I want to clearly, graciously, but clearly ask, is this perhaps where you have found yourself from time to time? Whether literally fasting which is the practice of depriving yourself of food for the sake of devoting that time and energy to prayer and communion with God and His Word and in reflection upon Him. Or maybe through some other spiritual discipline. Do you settle down before the Word of God and it has little power in your life? It's just words on a page and not truths that grab hold of your heart. Do you find yourself regularly wanting more in your spiritual life? And no matter what you seem to do, God seems to be further and further and further away. It is as if you were playing a high-stakes spiritual game where you were trying to find God. But you are blindfolded. And no matter how much you reach around, no matter how much you try to find your way, His voice only becomes more and more and more distant. Now, I want to be clear, what we are going to see in this passage is Isaiah is going to tell the people of Judah, the people of Israel, the reason that this is happening is because of your hypocrisy. And that's what we're going to probe at. That's what we're going to explore today. But it's, I want to be clear that there are times in which we can feel spiritually dry that are due to other factors. So we need to hear this word humbly. With, with, with a desire for God's Word to address us and correct us if that need to be the case. But also hear this word if, if this is not the case and you find yourself to be spiritually dry. Understand that there can be other causes of that as well. But the question we ask ourselves as we explore the hypocrisy of Judah is, is, is it possible for, for us to, see, to fail to see the connection between spiritual vitality and compassion towards others. God says in the latter part of verse 3 and then through verse 5, remember the beginning of verse 3, their, their spiritual dryness is confessed. And God says, well, here's why. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. 
and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Here's what's happening. The people of Judah depriving themselves of food, which for some of us, for many of us, that's very hard to do. The people of Judah bringing uh, ash, uh, sackcloth and ashes upon themselves and, and greatly humbling themselves and practicing this, this stark religious, this, this, this deep religious practice of, of, of great deprivation. And God says to them, I don't hear you. Is there anything worse that God could say to us as we cry out to Him? Is it possible that we act in spiritual disciplines and we do the things that we think we should be doing and yet we are callous and cold, hard-hearted and angry, bitter and vindictive, even vengeful, and twisting the knife in others. And God says to us, in your pride before others that you show to me. God tells His people they can take great steps of personal sacrifice, and yet that means nothing. Brothers and sisters, here's what we need to understand. We as Christians, as ones who profess to having received the grace of God through Jesus Christ, We are not to be dead ends of God's mercy. We are not to be dead ends where mercy of the living water of God through Jesus Christ flows to us, but then it stops, it stagnates, it poisons. How many of you like drinking stagnant water from out in the backyard? None of us do. The living waters of God's mercy are not to stop with us, but they are to flow through us and then extend outwardly towards those that we would have opportunity to give them to. What Isaiah is addressing here is a people who profess to having these living waters come to him, but it's all pooled up and now mosquitoes are flying over it and and it's just dirty and nasty water. When in fact... The rock of God's grace should have dropped amidst the lake of the people of God. And what happens is it doesn't pool up, but as people who profess to being recipients of the sublime, uh, unreal grace of God in Jesus Christ, as a massive rock of the gospel drops amongst us, it ought to ripple and flow out, even to those who do not know it. So God addresses the hypocrisy in verses 1 through 5 and now we see him define repentance and make an offer of delight to those who are spiritually dry because of their hypocrisy God introduces true repentance to his people and the treasure that is bound up in this repentance is an offer of delight in the unending goodness of God remember God is addressing this fasting that they had been practicing and now look at verse 6 
God says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Can we carefully probe our own hearts here for a moment? Brothers, brothers in our church family and even sisters too, do you sing of God's great grace on Sunday morning and then consume pornography on Sunday evening? Tying the bonds of wickedness. Tightening the straps on the oppressed. It is no wonder if that is the case that God says He is disgusted by your attempts to commune with Him when the same hands that we fold together to pray are the ones by which we pull up pornography on our phones and tablets and computers that degrade fellow image bearers of God. Do you regularly look for opportunities to give generously for the sake of the hungry and the homeless? Or do we see the needy and the downtrodden and whisper words of judgment in our mind and mutter a self-congratulatory refrain thanking ourselves that we are not like those who are in that boat? Now, as I worked through this passage, and it it references here, you know, the the hungry, the homeless. And the truth of the matter is, is we don't have a very high homeless population in Situate, Massachusetts. We have a food pantry that does good work in town. We're, gracious, we're, we're glad to be able to support the food pantry. But we don't face needs here like we do other places. And so perhaps the challenge for us is not to justify ourselves and say, okay, well, this excuses me. But perhaps the challenge that we have is to ask the deeper questions when it comes to showing love and mercy and compassion to those who need it in, uh, around here in the world. Am I one who looks for opportunities or am I one who justifies myself wherever I find myself? Perhaps the first steps towards ourself in understanding what the Lord demands of us here. is not listening to the voice of self-justification in her mind. You know what the Bible does to us? I think this is wonderful. I think this is incredible, beautiful, when compared with our world around us. The Bible does not let us be pinned down into easy-to-understand camps on the right or the left. It forces us towards compassion towards those that we would have disagreement with. It demands uh, fidelity towards doing God-honoring justice and seeking righteousness, showing empathy towards those whom we would say, I disagree with you on that, and I believe the Bible speaks clearly on this issue. But it does not allow us to be jerks. It demands gentleness. It demands compassion. It demands mercy. It's this type of paradigm-shifting demand of mercy that God's Word leads us towards that brings us to do things like last week when we prayed fervently for the sake of the unborn. And this week, perhaps as we read this passage, the question that we ask ourselves is, how is my heart towards the LGBTQ community? 
Or how is my heart towards uh, uh, folks that profess Black Lives Matter? You drive through a lot of places and you see churches that seem to be more passionate about the unborn on the right side of the aisle. Am I on, the, am I on your right? Yeah, my left, your right. You're looking towards me. Uh, uh, so that are, that are more passionate towards one thing on one side. And then you see churches that are more passionate towards another thing on the other side. And oftentimes these are irreconcilable. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ does is it meets us and it speaks to the value of all lives so that we say, okay, I, I, the, the, God's word demands our care for the unborn, but God's word also demands our care for those who might be in communities where they, they face mistreatment or, or where, where uh, they face difficulties that we don't necessarily enjoy, uh, face. And so what God's Word demands of us here in this passage is that we see how God's Word demands our hearts be bent towards mercy and compassion towards those around us, whatever camp they are in. It doesn't give us a test to filter here whereby we conclude, well, this person is worthy of my love, this person is not worthy of my love. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't give us that test to filter that through is because Christ Jesus did not filter us through that test when he died on the cross for our sins. And so as we face questions on this, there are all sorts of things that we, we wrestle through. Well, does, it, does this mean, what does this mean whenever it uh, uh, speaks to, to uh, uh, parts of the Bible that I, I, I don't know how to apply this, or I don't know how do I support uh, or how do I address the uh, LGBT community when I believe that God's Word clearly articulates uh, uh, that, Bible, or that marriage is something that's been designed for man and woman alone. Well, what God's Word demands us to do is hold fast to the convictions that God's Word gives us, but hold fast to our responsibility to give everything we can to meet those with whom we would differ with mercy and compassion. Seeking gent gentleness and not vilification. And so now look at the promise of God's goodness to His people as His mercy works His way through them and towards those to whom they would look and perhaps look over or ignore. So God tells them previously, the fasting that I desire is a fasting that, that, that seeks to care for the, the, um, uh, the hungry, the homeless, seeks to, to, to let the oppressed go free, seeks to break every yoke. And then He says in verse 8, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Let me ask you, do you want to dwell so, th so close to the throne of grace that your soul is warmed by the manifold wonder of the love of God in Christ Jesus? Or do you want to place limits on your cares towards others, 
even if that means that you only approach the far outskirts of knowing the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now let me turn and pause and look at this from another angle. If you look around and you see an abundance of problems in the world, vitriol, hate, animosity, strife, tension, violence, you name it. If you look around and say, hmm, how are we going to fix this? Which I imagine some of us have thought, and many of us have opinions on. You might think the message that I'm saying is, well, all we need to do is a better job of loving others. And if that's what you're getting, you're actually wrong. I'm, huh? Stephen, that's what you've been getting at now for 15 minutes. The message of Isaiah is not to try to make the world a better place day by day. The message of Isaiah is that Jesus Christ sits enthroned in heaven and his people whom he has brought to himself solely by his grace are commissioned to live as strangers and aliens in this world, seeking to live as residents in this world with demands of their citizenship in heaven before them. The best way we will be citizens in this world today is recognizing the demands of our citizenship in heaven and what they place on us. See, you and I, we are far less powerful than we think we are. We just think, oh, if everybody would just vote how I think we should vote, we'd get all these problems fixed. You can't vote how you think everybody should vote and get all the problems fixed. You cannot recycle enough. You can't put enough positive bumper stickers on your car. You cannot meditate long enough, clear your mind thorough enough, enter another world to detach yourself from here. What you and I need is Jesus Christ who has come to this world to give his life for our sins and in order that we might come to him by faith. What the offer of the gospel is for anyone in here that does not know Jesus Christ is to recognize that you cannot make this world outside of us or the world inside of you. You cannot fix the greatest problems that you think we have to face. But Jesus Christ offers nothing less than himself in order that he might become yours. And that through him, you might be made new. And you might enter into the church that is a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven that is to come. People who have been brought from spiritual death to life by the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the ones who will delight in justice and righteousness that those around us cannot understand apart from the fact that we are Christians. As a Christian, does your love towards others confuse those around you? Do you tear down the natural barriers that others try to build up? My front yard is a jungle right now. Many of you have heard me complain about it. Almost two weeks ago, the self-propelling function on my lawnmower broke. Thankfully, hopefully it's getting fixed tomorrow. Last night, one of the Chang's daughters sweetly told me that the grass in my yard was as high as she had ever seen. Such a sweet remark. Just playing. Technically, I could still mow the yard. 
I just wouldn't have the self-propelled function. Manually pushing the mower around would be quite difficult. Christian, if you're trying to navigate the Christian life, but have closed yourself off to extending radical mercy and gentleness towards others, towards those perhaps we've deemed don't deserve it, You're like these people in Isaiah 58 who are fasting greatly, doing great religious acts, but it's a trudge. You're trying to push around the mower through the jungle of the yard, but it won't propel on its own. But if you open up your heart to mercy, if you look for opportunities to extend grace, to walk in righteousness towards others, doing right by them even if they have nothing that they can offer you or to profit you, that's where your faith will fly. That's where it will propel on wings, and that is where it is in the heart of the generosity and mercy of Christ that flows through our veins. It is through the wonder of God's grace towards us that when taken from us and extended elsewhere, our faith flourishes. Listen, verse 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, how do I do this? What's the first step in getting my heart, my spirit, my mind on this track towards generosity and mercy towards others, it's repentance. It's repentance. We stop showing mercy to others when we lose sight of the great mercy that we have received. But when we drink deeply from the wells of the waters of God's mercy, we can't help but extend it to others outside of us. So empty religiosity... Now let's see full repentance in chapter 59. A Christian must be recalibrated, replace this stagnant water of self-righteousness with living water of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three ways we see this full repentance. First, in verses 1 through 3, honest evaluation. First, we need an honest evaluation of ourselves before the Lord. When we are cold in our self-righteousness and isolated in our lack of concern or compassion for others. The Lord tells us in verses 1 through 3, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies And your tongue mutters wickedness. Carefully reflect on these words, dear church. Our hard-heartedness, our shortness, our combativeness towards others, these are not beautiful plants that dot the gardens of our personalities and that make us who we are. These are walls that we build and not just build against others, but more importantly, more dramatically, more worryingly, more alarmingly, they are walls that we build separating us from the glorious reach of God. So you may wonder, how do I tear down these walls? How do I recognize the sins of my own heart and how I reckon, in our, interact with others? 
that may reveal what I, what, how I'm pushing God away. May I recommend something bold? Find a person or two whom you trust to lovingly give it to you straight. Ask them to honestly help you to see how to treat other people. Are there ways that you harm others and don't realize it? Do you unknowingly talk down to or talk over or talk behind the back of others in ways that reveal how your tongue betrays you? Far too often, we all, myself included, we deprive ourselves of one of the most gracious gifts that God has given us for this pilgrim journey. He has given us fellow pilgrims along the way. I want to pause for a couple of moments and do something. I know there are a few visitors with us today and some of our regulars who are out. But let's play along. I want everyone to pause and just look around for five seconds. Don't talk, just look around. Look behind you, look in front of you, look to the left, look to the right. If you're a visitor, feel free to play along, put your head down, whatever. We're glad to have you. Do you recognize that everyone that you see is a precious gift from God to you for your growth in the faith? Will we vow to walk alongside of one another in love? Will we commit to serving and inviting one another to serve as a form of our blind spot monitors? How many of you have those blind spot warnings on your car? If you're driving down the interstate, you start to get over and it beeps really loudly at you startling you perhaps, and you veer back into your lane before a wreck. That beeping is annoying. It's loud. It's shrill. But you know what it's better than? A wreck. We need one another to beep at each other. Lovingly, graciously. But will we commit to one another, church family, those of us who are regulars here, to allow one another to beep at one another when we see and we are concerned by the things that we hear each other saying. Asking brother or sister, hey, how's your heart towards that person? How can I pray for you in that bitterness or that anger that you harbor? You know those large oversized trucks you see on the interstate? They have a vehicle ahead of them and behind them with flashing lights saying wide load. In our sinful flesh, we all can be spiritually wide loads. And we need one another in front and behind helping to protect us. Not because we need to be reminded of where we're beeping and where we're getting out of our lane. But because God's given us one another to help us reach our destination. And if we see anything in Isaiah 58 and 59, we see the warning against a people presuming that they're going to reach their destination, but not because they are totally unaware of their own sinfulness. It's better to shine the spotlight on your sin today that you may enter into the light of God's grace through Jesus in that day. And if this is settling heavy upon you, you say, boy, I don't know. If I invite other people into my life, it's going to be a constant beeping. Beep, 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 you know? 
First of all, we're going to resolve to do this graciously, kindly, mercifully to one another. But secondly, if you're worried about the beeping, may I remind you and encourage you with verse 1 of chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. So we have an honest evaluation from God, but now we need a clear explanation as to the costs of what is at stake. Isaiah gives two illustrations in verses 4-8, through eight, a snake's eggs and a spider's web. Basically, he says both of these begin as one thing, and they birth and they spread and they get worse, and they reach out into something far more treacherous and dangerous. I haven't spent much time around snakes' nests. Do snakes nest? I, don't, I generally don't like to know much about snakes. Let's assume they nest and they lay eggs. You walk by the nest with the eggs, you might not be in danger from the eggs. But when those eggs hatch, down the road there's danger. And a lot of it. This is a warning that Isaiah gives against believing that we can manage our own hidden sins. That thing that you think you have everyone else fooled by. The habit, the pattern of life, the conduct that is reserved for the dark room, for late at night, for when no one else can see the habit, the addiction, just the conduct. This is a warning against believing that you can manage respectable sin. Perhaps you look at sin that you struggle with, and you say, well, everyone else struggles with that. That's our inner defense lawyer. Our standard is not everyone else. Our standard is that which God has said to us in His Word. And our warning is not against escaping the judgment of finite human beings around us. It's that we won't escape the judgment of an infinitely holy God who knows all. What secret sin do you carry? If any, what do you harbor that perhaps you've kept isolated from others and they are unaware, but as you sit here and read Isaiah 58 and 59, you realize that you may have everyone else fooled, but you do not have God fooled. It is far greater to tear down these walls of your sins separating from you, God, you from God. It's far better to tear them down in this life, even if it is painful than to further fortify them and find that in the next life, these walls of your own sin prohibit you from entering the blessed peace of the presence of Christ. And you are relegated to the judgment of His wrath upon your sin. Listen to how Isaiah describes the outcome of those who, 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 who protect and guard their sin. In verse 7 and 8, they, their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts Our thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. If you have some kind of secret sin you're harboring, I'm no mind reader, but I know you don't know peace. If you want peace, bring it to Christ. I'd love to talk with you about it. Set up a time for you and I to talk. I'd love to extend to you the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Speak words of comfort to you for Christ 
who has died for all of your sins, not just the sins that other people know about you, but the sins that are deep in your heart. If we're going to appropriately address our empty religiosity and our failures to show mercy and practice judgment towards others, then what's our recourse? How do we navigate out of the warnings of this passage? How do we come up for fresh air? We pursue repentance in an unhindered manner. Verses 9 to 13. I want to show you something. If you look at verses 1 through 3, you see people addressed in second person plural. So you see you, your, the language there in verses 1 through 3. These are bringing direct accusations. You do this, you do this, your sin is this. But then if you go to verses 4 to 8, you see people addressed in third person plurals, they and them, describing the nature of their sin. But now in verses 9 to 13, we have first person plural. And what is this? Is this an English lesson? No, it's an example of the people of God coming to him in repentance. This audience is taking ownership of their sin and responding. So as we look at verses 9 to 13, what does it mean to confess our sin before God in this manner? We confess, verse 9, the darkness of our sin. We hope for light, but darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom, as verse 9 says. We confess our helplessness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. In the middle of noon, we walk around, but it's like twilight. Among those who walk with full vigor, we are like dead men. We confess the bitterness of our sin. We growl like bears. We moan like doves. We confess the hopelessness of our sin. In verse 11, we hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. And we confess our own guiltiness in verses 12 and 13. Our transgressions, O God, they're multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgression and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering the heart from the heart lying words. This is what God lays before us. The roadmap to repentance is one where we acknowledge all of this. We don't say, yeah, I'm doing all right on the journey. I could just use a little hand. We say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a goner. I'm dead in my tracks. I don't need somebody to lift me up by the hand. I need somebody to give new life to my heart. And that is where we trust in the work of God. That is where we trust in Jesus Christ who gave His life not to help out people who needed a pick-me-up, but to awaken from the dead people who needed new life. That is where we look to Christ and we remind ourselves, hear this, dear Christian, We remind ourselves that He not only died for the sins that we were aware of when we first became Christians, but He died for the sins that we were not yet aware of and the sins that we still will commit. And so with the same fervor by which we cast our sins upon Him when we first came to Christ, we can daily cast our sins before Him and not feel like we're going to get the stink eye from Him as if, why can't you guys learn? But recognizing the way that we learn is by continually coming to Him for grace. The school of grace is not one that we advance or graduate out of. It's simply one where we continually learn new lessons. 
I am not exaggerating at all when I tell you if you had shown Stephen McDonald his sins of 2022 back in 2010, I would have been horrified. Not because I feel like I'm a lot worse person than I was 12 years ago. And don't hear that as me justifying myself, which I've just preached for a long time against, okay? But what I'm saying is, God in His grace does not conceal our sinfulness from us and our need for grace from us. He does not conceal it by His grace. He reveals it. That we may come to Christ. That we may never tire. That we may never get sunburned in the sun of our sin. Because we are always dwelling right in the shadow of the cross. Isaiah is saying here. People of God who profess the love of God. The grace of God. Let it flow out of you. In abundance to the world around you. And when it doesn't, come to God and find grace. Pray for Him to change your heart towards the person or people that you have tried for years to change your heart against. And you still can't do it. Pray for Him to meet you in grace when you know that nothing else works. And know that in walking to the light, you are not going to be left high and dry. But you are going to find a Savior who does not say to you, I thought we were past this already. But who says to you, I will walk with you in this. You stay in my shadow. And I'll keep you in my grip. We cannot fool God with our empty religiosity. With our lack of care for others. He knows our hearts towards others. And invites us to live in his mercy and grace. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would help us to live by the grace of Christ, to take this road map of repentance and not throw it aside and trust the inner GPS of our hearts that would want to drive us into the ditch of self-righteousness. But help us to take this road map of repentance and allow it to be the means by which we drive into your celestial city. And know that we will reach safe refuge and sure delight. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.